On today's episode, an inspiring discussion with James Demers on transgender inclusion, uplifting LGBTQ voices, and building bridges between communities. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Exclusion is brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biarg Consulting. Hi everyone, it's Marcy here. Today we're talking with James Demers, a skilled facilitator, accomplished educator, and advocate for equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI, and transgender inclusion. And as always, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, we acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. We acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work, and play on these lands, and to all those who assist in their stewardship for generations to come. So James Demers, his pronouns are he, him, and he has worked as a professional facilitator and LGBTQ diversity educator for nine years, and as a community builder for 14 years. Uh, Working across a variety of sectors in Treaty 7 territory, Mukinsis, and around the world. He is also a trans activist, athlete, bunny dad, performer, public speaker, and lucky drag producer with fake mustache. He has committed his life and career to uplifting LGBTQ voices and building bridges of understanding between all of us. All right. So before we jump in, we wanted to mention that one of the reasons why we've had a little bit of a hiatus in our uh, podcast recordings is because Marcy's team has been expanding immensely. And James is actually one of the new members of the CEC team and greater CEC community. And uh, we will hopefully be bringing a few CEC members because, you know, we go out and we look for people to interview across Canada and across Alberta. And sometimes you forget to look at your own back door. (laughs) So James, we're really excited to have you. And But before we jump in, I have to hear about the bunny dad thing. (laughs) Uh, I have had rescue rabbits for the last... Uh, give or take decade and a half. Uh, and so I, I'm delighted by, I think bunnies and cats teach you about consent better than most people do. Well, isn't that the truth? And what kind of, like, is, are they just, is there a certain type of bunny or uh, any I kind of bunny? The, I went to the Humane Society to get a chameleon when I got my first rabbit. So he found me. Um, he looked like kind of like a baby Ewok. He's just very fluffy. He was a lion head. <laughs> um, and I just lost him last year, but he Aww. lived 14, which for a house rabbit is a pretty significant, yeah. <laughs> significant run. And I have a little, uh, I have a little fluffy, um, sort of like lion head teddy. They're called teddy bear rabbit mix. Uh, so she's gray and sassy and um, runs the house, at least in my purview. So. <laughs> that is, I grew up with rabbits, so I I just get so excited when I get to see a rabbit or play with a rabbit. And then when I was a kid, we actually, um, my dad rescued a, a jackrabbit. Um, there was a hawk that was going to get it in the middle of the field, and he grabbed it and brought it home. And it was so little, we still had to feed it with with um, like just a little eyedropper. And um, 
yeah, the jackrabbit lived in our house until it was too big and had to be let go, but then it stayed around our farm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I have a big soft spot for bunnies. So that's really, really neat. Thanks for that. So, yeah. all right, let's actually jump in. So what kind of work do you do at CEC? Uh, so currently the, the work I'm doing at CEC is around uh, training and, and strategic development and interviews and um, training is, I think, the, the big chunk of why I started doing this work and then having the opportunity to build curriculum and particularly to flesh out spaces around sort of LGBT identity and gender identity. How do we talk about that in a professional context, uh, which I love doing. So it's great. And I, right now I get to kind of do a jack of all trades, little bits of everything. And uh, that's been really rewarding for me. So. And you were saying before we recorded that you enjoy the interviews because you're more of an extrovert. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm an extrovert. And I do genuinely believe that the solutions to all of the reasons that we uh, interrupt each other's opportunities in the world are um, at the table whenever there are two people talking. So I think that there's always a possibility um, for us to find a way to uh, to connect, to make something productive and to contribute. And so that but you have to be willing to have conversations with people. I think distance causes a lot of our problems. Isn't that the truth for sure? So you co-founded the Queer Education Foundation. So what is that? Can you tell us about that organization? Yeah. So the Queer Education Foundation was a, a company that I started with two other colleagues of mine, uh, Victoria Buchholz and Anda Fabrik. Uh, they're colleagues of mine that I'd worked with both in the training world and then a little bit in the performance world. We're all uh, cabaret or drag performers <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, and educators. And it was this great opportunity. I made the choice to leave nonprofit where I had been doing EDI work primarily for the last almost decade. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to do this work a little bit more independently. And I thought there would be real value in creating a queer and trans-owned business and moving forward in that sphere of, uh, of sort of advocacy and development. And it also provided an opportunity for all of us to exist as educators working from lived experience under our own power. Uh, and that's really rare. When, uh, when Victoria and I went into the bank to set up the bank account, I, we walked out of there after the most boring 15-minute bank appointment I'd ever had. And as two trans people, uh, that wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. The enormous amount of work and, and complexity that would have been involved in getting a bank account for our business would have been very different. So um, it was very cool. It seemed like it was something we'd been working towards for a long time. Mm, and QEF is great because we get to do historical work. Uh, that's part of the, so we have several sessions on, like, I, I run a session on queer history of the 20th century. We have 100 years of drag culture. So we have this kind of side expansion that plays on all of our performing instincts. And so some of us deliver those presentations, like in drag or in the traditional costume, which is actually kind of fun. So. And I think there's a complete misconception from the general population that this is a new topic that we're discussing right now. Isn't that crazy? Like you talk about a hundred years of history, right? And like, that's not even. <laughs> not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Recorded history, I'm sure. Yeah. Versus true history. Yeah. It's fascinating. Queer people have existed in every culture, in every era of human history, in every corner of the world. It's just that our cultural conception of what LGBT identity looks like is very specific to North America, to the development of the North American movement. Um, But queer storytelling and queer lived experience exists absolutely everywhere. It's just that historians have either buried it in a lot of cases or refused to look for it. Uh, So there's always, it's neat. The world is much more colorful than we think it is. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, we wanted to also ask you about how have you been able to overcome resistance and advocate for change in your work? 
and it could be personally or or professionally through through your trainings oh um stubbornness and being <laughs> in the right place at the right time i i was fortunate to to receive a job when i started with what was then the fairy tales presentation society uh, i essentially was handed a shoebox full of documentary dvds and they said build an educational program <laughs> so we did uh and it was interesting because i was ended up being in a position to be like the first LGBT educator that had walked into most, if not the vast majority of the companies that I worked with. And so it was, uh, I got very good very quickly at managing other people being far more nervous about the content than I was. Like the grizzly bear effect completely applies here. Uh, people were far more nervous about bringing a queer person in to talk to them about these things than I was talking to them. But not, that's, but that, got better and better over time. When I first started, I absolutely worked with clients or was invited to come to offices where like I was not safe and it could have gone very badly for me as a visibly trans, like as a trans person who was talking about my transition in the context of the session. So I've had some uh, difficult or you know, genuinely scary experiences, but most of them have been other people's fear. <laughs> so that's a lot easier. For marginalized people, or for me, for me as a marginalized person, I have always treated the ways in which society believes I shouldn't have access to things like buying liquor underage. If I mm -hmm. think I deserve to be there, then I'm there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. It's just very much where I was like, no, I, I am a human being. I contribute to the world. I'm a good person. And I deserve to be able to access healthcare and, and, and employment and uh, educational opportunities. And just believing that did a lot of it. What was one of the most impactful things you've been able to achieve or see in terms of advancing inclusion in your career? I had the opportunity to write and consult for a couple of years. It's an ongoing project on uh, the Foothill School of Medicine mandatory trans patient training program. It was the first mandatory transgender patient program for uh, second year, um, second year medical students that it existed in Canada. And currently that program has been approved for a national Delphi study, which means that if the study, if the study proves the need provincially in individual health regions across the country for dedicated education around trans patients, which I could promise it does, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, then this program will be adopted nationally uh, and will be a, a federal offering that will be offered to medical schools across the country. And so that means 10 years from now, we could very much live in a Canada where trans and non-binary people don't have to worry about what doctor they're going to find when they need to find one. And that is significant um, because one of the most significant barriers that contribute to the short life expectancies that are common in trans populations is something in the healthcare system we call broken arm syndrome, which is I go into Sheldon Schumer with a broken arm and 45 minutes later, I've told 15 people about my transition, which happened a decade and a half ago, and no mm. one has x-rayed my arm. Right. So this assumption that like when trans or non-binary people access medical services or psychological services, that it's about our transition is a problem and it prevents medical practitioners from wanting to work with us because of the stereotype association that we're going to be difficult patients. And so education changes that significantly and changes our outcomes. So uh, it's a long-term plan, but my health outcomes and my friends and my, and my community are going to change dramatically because we had put four hours of education into one program. Like that's how powerful this can be. So really thrilled about that. And that ongoing work is really impactful. Uh, I'm lucky to have gotten to be a part of it. Uh, so yeah, it was good. And we made we made a change in that program 
where I call it trans speed dating. They don't like to call it that, but that's fine. <laughs> and part of the program is there's a there's a module that they all go through sort of the basics and information. And then there's a meet, there's a face-to-face -face opportunity where we split up 400 medical students, 16 members of the trans community, 16 health professionals, doctors and nurses who work with us and have competency. And we developed case studies or with this whole group with community and physicians, which had never happened in my career. Having trans people at the table to discuss their own healthcare and how we are treated is revolutionary. It has not happened until very recently. And so now the students at the end of all of their module work go through this entire day where they sit down with multiple case studies and they're always meeting a trans person and their doctor together as the authorities in the room. And so if there isn't a doctor that leaves that room that hasn't had the opportunity to see a variety of trans identity and talk to an actual person about what that means and have that backed up by the medical professors that are determining their education. And that's a powerful connection where a community and, a, and an institution, that's real partnership. Uh, and it's never been done before. And it's such a rewarding day. I do it every September, uh, which is when it usually runs as part of their program. Uh, and it, it totally opens up what the possibilities are for providing authentic and sort of like holistic care in that way. And so. sorry, how long have they been doing that? Three years now. <laughs> and and how, because I think that's fantastic, but you know, there's so many situations where it's really hard to get even the start of that. How did you, how did it start? Like what, uh, what hoops I, did you have to go through? I'm sure there was many. You know, the, I, I was invited onto the project by a really spectacular um, ally who's uh, Dr. Nicole Thompson, who's working, who's currently an, an educating doctor in uh, the head of gynecology in Vancouver General. Uh, Dr. Thompson is, I get to call her Dr. Thompson now as of six months ago. So I try to do it as much as I can because we've had a chance to work together for a number of years. Um, but she realized that there was nothing concrete in the program while she was a student. And frankly, she just made an enormous amount of noise about it uh, long enough and for loud enough that they gave her a small pilot budget. Um, and then the doctor she was working with connected them to me because I was already doing advocacy in other places with the Children's Hospital and a couple of other bits. I've done provincial um, health policy work for a while. And so she connected them with me. We built the initial case studies, ran the pilot, and then it got picked up. So uh, yeah, Dr. Nicole Thompson is why that happened. Uh, it was purely a uh, <laughs> a stubborn and smart and determined woman who was just like, no, no, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to come into the 20th century and we're going to do that while I'm doing medical school, which was remarkable. So yeah, it was. I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And there was an active allyship that made it possible. So, and, and that's so important, right? It's it's those allies, it's those voices that will just say, "No, I'm not stepping down. <laughs> I'm not backing down." Right? Yeah. That's that's great. Uh, yeah. I know, like I work with a lot of STEM groups, and um, we've been fighting for years to even get EDI entered into the engineering ethics class like <laughs> we can't even get them to teach it for uh, two days in, in in the ethics class so i i think that's fantastic and i think it's a good model to show that it can be done and that these topics can be um normalized that it's something important to include so that's fantastic i find allyship is the most powerful in the places you go every day like if you can change your corner store, your, the, the GSA, your kid's school, the program that you're currently engaged in as a student with a level of investment, that's actually the most powerful. You have the most power in those places. And being able to lean into those places it actually gives you the most opportunity. Um, I think a lot of people think of allyship, I like to say, as like the romantic, the grand romantic gesture, right? And it, that's not 
that's actually not what changes the world. It's actually not the grand romantic gesture. It's all of the little things where you already are. That's yeah. I I remember when I went back to university, took a um, a feminist methodologies class, and it was quite. It was so interesting because I remember the room at times when we would discuss things where everyone would just be so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I remember our teacher, um, Dr. Rebecca Sullivan, said to all of us. She said, "Look, we can't all change the world all the time." in one moment but if we each pick something and we do that one thing and we each do the one thing really well then collectively the change happens and it was like this sigh of relief through the whole room I'll never forget that because I do think that sometimes we all get very overwhelmed of trying to help everything everyone every moment every time big topics and uh and you're right it's those everyday little things that we can all participate in that collectively make such a difference so it's nice to be reminded of that so how can straight um cisgender people support transgender inclusion so we already talked about this a little bit is there other things that we can do on our on our day-to-day lives to be the allies think about your gender it seems like a really simple thing, but it's gender is more powerful when we all examine it and examine the, the things about gender that um, become prescriptive for us instead of descriptive or potential. And so there, um, it's interesting because particularly as a, a trans person, it's often like I talk about gender an enormous amount, but we all have it. And so a self-awareness of how all of us uh, express and feel and interact and have a relationship with our personal gender, actually, it sort of starts to control the myths and stereotypes that we apply to expectations of ourself. Why are we picking that thing? Why are we deferring to that person? Why are we making an assumption about this or that, right? So there's, as, as a way of addressing gender roles, uh, being conscious of your own gender is actually really powerful. So when you're, when you're being treated a certain way by somebody, uh, it's, it's really interesting to start to look at like, how is everyone performing their gender in this moment? It's actually a little weird. If you're in a meeting, it's very distracting because once you Mm -hmm. start seeing the performance, you can't unsee it. And I think that's really interesting. So if I think cisgender people, instead of looking at gender as like a problem that trans and non-binary people have to deal with, we need to look at gender as a color that all of us have access to, that we can we can paint our world with it in a variety of different ways. And in the same way that it's vitally important that we have conversations about race in order to address the stereotypes and assumptions that come with race, we have to have conversations about gender so that we're not invisibilizing or making um, small segments of the population who know their gender very well. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's sort of the, the difference where I was like, look, I've done dozens of hours of therapy about my gender. I have Mm -hmm. explained my gender to medical professionals for years. I am very articulate about what that means to me, but I think everyone should get that gift, not the process. The process is not a gift, but being able to articulate how you like your relationship with your body, um, I think is really, really powerful and making that something that is um, intentional and deliberate. And when people apply gendered assumptions to you, you'll notice sooner. And then you can explode them, right? That makes a big difference. So, I mean, you see this in in the workplace in terms of sort of like 
we've had conversations about wage equity and equity between sort of like gender identity, particularly women in the workplace for decades. Uh, and a lot of the reason that it hasn't taken hold is because we are still attached to specific cultural gender roles. And we have lots of insecurity about how well all of us collectively address our gendered expectations put on us by the culture. And so we make choices based on the gendered expectations of society that have nothing to do with our gender identity as people. Uh, and so that changes how we interact with others. It changes the power structures that we're willing to speak back to or speak up about. Uh, and it also isolates us from each other. So for example, like not to bring mean girls into it, but like one of the, one of the biggest challenges, right. With this, with this conversation about like, how do we have a secure woman's movement? How do we, is that we are often terrible to each other. <laughs> we yeah. often have gendered expectations within gendered groups, within trans and non-binary communities. There is an incredible level of gender policing and that's what we need to explode. Um, so if we stop looking at other people in our sort of gender category. So if we start looking at like other women as like primarily competition and all of us are trying to fit into this very narrow definition, then we just don't have to carry that weight. And it doesn't mean that we have, like, I'm not interested in abolishing gender. I think it's super neat, but I am interested in freeing it and giving it more space to breathe. And that doesn't happen if just trans and non-binary people do it. Oh, you're getting into my wheelhouse now with gendered space. Like mm -hmm. I, I, it's like you said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. And um, the, wor the work that I've done on gendered spaces, even how the spaces themselves can recreate the gender, right? Yeah, the pedagogy of the oppressed, right? We right, it's just circular. Yeah, absolutely. And how you will have to perform, be performative in one way in one space and different in another space. And, and you're right. Um, I would say the majority of the population doesn't even know they do it. Or, the, or realize the, the expectations put on them by the normalization of certain gender roles and how I, I, you mentioned both the mean girls with, within, within women, but also if you think of toxic masculinity and oh, yeah. the high <laughs> expectations on men and just, um, I, I even see that my son is in grade five now and, um, we actually had a transgender child in his class and, and, you know, someone who studies gender, I thought that would be like the best thing ever. I'm like, this is so great that, you know, the kids get to explore this. Well, everyone was so scared within the class and within this, the community that it actually created a more binary of the gender roles because everyone was trying to protect the child while they figured out where they sit that mm -hmm. no one else could do any kind of genders it was quite I I was shocked I didn't expect that um so and and I don't mean the adults I mean even the kids were protecting each other but mm -hmm. in the process of that because no one was helping them walk through it the it, that class was probably more binary in their gender than other classes which I, I hadn't anticipated so it goes to show you how society can decide um, what gender should be as opposed to having the opportunity for all the kids to explore it. So yeah, um, yeah. when um, you can overcompensate that that's, that's kind of, yeah, right. Like you can, you can overcompensate and trans and non-binary folks because we 
have structured, uh, mostly colonially, because we've structured our society in ways that are exceptionally binary. What it does is because cisgender people are not given the opportunity to explore their gender in a space that isn't laden with cultural expectation, it means they never explore it. And so when they encounter individuals in their world that are exploring it, you have a fight or flight response. You're either attached to that person and fascinated, or you have a reactionary response. And without the conversation to bridge that experience, even other LGBT people, uh, when I transitioned, um, people that I had dated previously because I was transitioning had little crises of faith about like who they were attracted to and what that meant and what that meant for their, you know, it's a whole, it's not mm-hmm. my problem, it's their problem, mm-hmm. but it happens, right? And mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of the thing is if cisgendered people actually thought about gender more than we wouldn't have to have, then when, when the gender binary is interrupted in your world, it wouldn't be a destabilizing factor. And it sort of be like, oh, neat. That's an option. Interesting. Right. So mm-hmm. that makes a difference. The other thing, the other single most powerful thing that cisgendered allies can do is to support trans and non-binary people, particularly around things like names and pronouns when we're not there. So the, the one of the more allyship is more impactful often when the marginalized group that you were speaking up for or creating space for are not present to witness it because it communicates to people in that space that you actually are genuinely being a stand in for that uh, for that progress. And so um, it is a different it's a different kind of advocacy. But, yeah, I always say it's more important how you use a trans person's pronouns when they're not there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I love that. Um going to detour us just slightly and ask because you do such important work and um and you do it so well how do you what do you do for self-care so i imagine uh, it would be really hard to do this mm-hmm. every day yeah the emotional labor of doing this work is complicated uh coming out to thousands of people a year is complicated <laughs> mm-hmm. um i made a choice an active like active, verbal, very conscious choice uh, to choose to live out about my identity almost from the second that I started transitioning. I was out before because I was a visibly queer person before. But I, uh, it was quite the process to figure out how much of myself can I, can I give as examples to create the storytelling hook that creates empathy in the work versus like what are the things about myself and my past and my lived experience that are mine and what can I use as storytelling sort of factors and I had to separate those two things and make a choice about how that balances out because there's a lot more in the basket right you don't have to just dump the basket over <laughs> you can pick um, I also started uh, I also started lifting very very heavy uh, so I've always had a I've always had a physical fitness practice for me it's always been a lot more meditative um, I played team sports for my entire life up until my transition. And as you can imagine, uh, trans people in sports is one of the places where uh, we are not, that is not going super well. There are 144 anti-trans bills moving through legislative houses in the States right now, partially in a, re- in a reactionary uh, reactionary um, step after the election. So that can be really quite complicated. And, and so I got into individual sports as an extrovert who loves teams, which was really difficult for me, actually, at, at the time. Uh, I got into individual sports and started powerlifting and doing things like camping and mountain climbing. And that helped a lot. I needed to, I need to have a conscious and ongoing relationship with my body 
uh, for a variety of reasons for my trans status. Cause that's how I have, cause I, I think about my relationship with my body as a relationship, like an intimate relationship with a per, another person who is me, who I have to show up for because when, right. Because otherwise what happened to me in my life is I let society dictate who I was and I was miserably unhappy when I figured out who I was being able to hold on to that and hold on to that relationship is a vitally important part of why I get to move through the world with gender euphoria rather than dysphoria. It's not as if trans people don't have dysphoria, but we don't talk about euphoria when it's good, <laughs> when you feel great and everything is lining up for you, right? It's that first date feeling where you're just like, whoever I'm meeting, they're meeting me, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's, um, so the physical practice made a big difference. And then I expanded that a little bit and started doing um, personal training work with clients, particularly with clients who have no interest in walking into a gym. So I specialize in eating disorder recovery and body dysmorphia. And it was really satisfying to spend sort of spend all day teaching people, which I love doing and put a lot of energy out there. But in order to sort of refill that energy, having a one-on-one conversation with a client where they're reconnecting with their body, where it's like nothing else actually matters. All the other people in their lives don't matter. We can just build this bridge here. And I'm just there to facilitate that relationship. And so being able to bring people into that space was also incredibly rewarding. So that's, that's kind of how I balance it is I talk about bodies a lot. And then when I talk about relationships with people's bodies, we don't talk about bodies at all. And so there's this physical, spiritual, I guess, is a way to put it, balance um, between who you are in the world and what is necessary for us to survive there, and then who you are with yourself and what is necessary to survive there. Uh, And they're both vitally important. Like I can't have one without the other. If If I miss time in meditation with my body, I notice and it affects my work. So it becomes this positive reinforcement. That's a long answer. But. No, that was amazing. <laughs> Even how your self-care routine involves helping others. Right? <laughs> like it's pretty, very, yeah. <laughs> very inspirational. Kind of building off of that too in, in, in our previous conversation. Um, it can be really hard for people to see and recognize their own privilege. Um, and uh, if they don't if they don't experience, you know, it's hard for people to empathize with others. That's naturally something that is often hard to do. And how do you effectively teach people that? Uh, I try to take the value judgments associated with the phrase, check your privilege out of the conversation, um, which is something I started doing a couple of years ago. So I talk about privilege as a hammer, as like a neutral tool, right? So privilege is a hammer. Everybody has a hammer. You can build things with a hammer or destroy things with a hammer. Building and destroying is also value neutral, depending on what the context is. So for organizations, for example, destroying something can be doing something like adding ASL interpretation to your programs, to your public programming, and it destroys a barrier for the deaf community to participate, right? Building something can be doing something like adjusting your HR policy to explicitly add a medical transition policy. So if someone transitions at your workplace, it's already there. And that makes an enormous difference. And so, but what privilege is, is it's, I like to think of it as a measurement to determine the capacity you have for allyship. Because this level of privilege that we all collectively enjoy in the world opens up these breathing spaces where we can help others, right? So I enjoy a different amount of privilege walking through the world as a white man now than I used to. And so part of the reason I choose to do this work is because I have the emotional capacity because the world doesn't shit on me every five minutes, which is not untrue for women of color, right? In any context, as an example. And so because of that, I've got the space to hold a level of, a level of emotional labor where I feel like I can contribute. And this seems like a productive way to take advantage of 
with that. Um, and people can experience privilege and oppression simultaneously. So I have male privilege in the world till I come out. I have male privilege with clients till I train them, right? Because, but that's what's powerful about it is because you have to keep working with me. <laughs> so there, like, and then we have a relationship. That that is what makes the fundamental difference. So privilege is not saying that you haven't worked hard for something in your life. It's not saying that you haven't struggled. It's not saying that you haven't experienced hardships and heartbreak and difficulty, and that those haven't had an impact on the very precarious, for most of us, um, opportunities in life that we enjoy. The reality is that societally, we have such a massive wage discrepancy between, um, between even, I mean, if you can argue that a middle class currently exists, we're getting close to a place where that's not realistic. And so most people are so afraid of change because as we've seen in the pandemic, the slightest shift in the opportunities where they're present for our livelihood and connections with others can destabilize most of us dramatically. So it's often not that people want to be bigots or frankly, want to be activists. Most people are made activists or bigots for a reason, right? Most people don't choose the extremes of that. I mean, lots of people choose to be activists, but usually because they've experienced something terrible and them, a family member, like that. So if we look at privilege, instead of it being a reason to stop talking to people who are oppressed, which is what people mostly use it for. So like, well, I'm privileged, so I can't help. I'm like, no, 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 it's the total opposite. <laughs> if you can identify your privilege without assigning a value judgment to yours or other people's lived experience, then it's just a metric that tells you how much you can affect change in the world. And if you do it from the place that you are, then it becomes really impactful kind of immediately, right? So the reality is if we wanted to fix wage equity, we could do it tomorrow. It's that people don't want to do that. It's greed, right? That is most of our destabilizing factor. People don't want to, you know, if people who don't want to integrate EDI or work with queer people or learn anything about the world around them is usually based in greed and fear. And so if we had a system, for example, like I think UBI, if it becomes a reality, is going to change the conversation around EDI for organizations because there will be hundreds of thousands of Canadians who can suddenly make an active choice about what they're willing to put up with at work. Mm -hmm. And that's never been possible economically. So like, we have to see, we have to see resistance to affecting change with your privilege as an economic issue, as much as it is a social issue. And we can't divorce the economic reality from people's social condition. And so those two things relate, right? So fear of the unknown is usually because someone is afraid of losing what they have. And that's because our economic system is pretty oppressive, to be completely honest. And so where's the space to learn? Like a lot of people say, like, where's the space for me to read nine books on race a week? I'm like, that's valid. But also, this is the planet we're on. So you can either make the world a better, like, I think we're obligated as adults to make the world a better place than we found it. I like the campsite rule. <laughs> And that can be in little ways, but you don't know how to make the world a better place if you can't assess your privilege, I think. All right. Well, this leads us to our next question. We like to ask our guests about the topic of intersectionality, because I know this is a word that is uh, thought of differently and uh, the approach to differently by every person. So can you tell us a little bit about your intersectional approach to your work focused on transgender inclusion? Mm -hmm. So I, I think intersectionality is, is fundamentally important because it reminds oppressed and marginalized people who are fighting for their own uh, inclusion to include others. That's the goal here is to not just look at sexism, but look at sexism and racism and colonization and how those impact indigenous communities, black communities, et cetera, right? 
Um, because trans and non-binary, well, because LGBT people across the spectrum have existed in every part of human history forever, there are trans people in every part of the world and every cultural history. We've always been there in a variety of different ways. I like to talk about intersectionality as a Rubik's cube, because the reality is that we're all an interesting combination of our intersections and where those intersections meet barriers, we can make change. So if you take a Rubik's cube, right, it's a six-sided engineering puzzle. It's all connected in the middle. Unless you take the stickers off, all the sides have <laughs> to work together for you to solve it, right? It's a it's a it's a whole thing with unique sides. So if you start, but we can't playing, just take the stickers off and just be done with it. <laughs> we don't even make them the stickers anymore. I've been looking. I have a weird. I have like I have a weird a number of them, but. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so if you start taking your intersection, so if you put sex, gender, and sexual orientation on three of the sides, and then let's talk about what the other ones represent, right? Socioeconomic status, religious background, family composition, immigrant status, there are all these things. So what are your intersections? And then it, give, it puts us in a position where we can't take a human being who is a personal faith and also queer and separate them. They're a whole person. And so their queerness and their faith are going to interact. And their socioeconomic status and their faith and their queerness are going to interact. And their gender identity and their right, like all of these things. And so if we can start seeing the people around us as Rubik's Cubes, as the collection of all of the vitally important aspects of their identity that make them whole people, then we can start talking about where their intersections connect with ours or where they face barriers, right? And so I think that makes an enormous difference. So I, yeah, I like to use the Rubik's Cube theory because you can't, you can't look at, at a woman and say, like, speak for all women. And you can't look at one gay man and say, speak for all gay men. But you, but you can identify that there may be additional challenges faced by a gay trans woman who's Muslim. We can, we can address the wage inequity at the level of her womanhood. We can address the medical inequity at the level of her transition. We can address, right? Like, but we have to be able to look at them holistically. So we have to look at our friends and neighbors, regardless of the prominence. So if someone's coming out to you, they're that identity in that moment, but they're also all of their history and all of their family's context. So we have to look at our friends and neighbors and coworkers as the collective of our intersections, as Rubik's Cubes, as something more complex than just looking at one aspect of what we present. And if we're in a position where we feel like we can't present ourselves holistically, so the phrase gets used all the time is bring our whole selves to work, then this is where we notice it, right? Is when we start have to hide, having to hide parts of ourselves, the Rubik's Cube doesn't work as well. Uh, and so, it becomes, it becomes systemic oppression because you're compensating for your inability to move through the world in a way that feels natural to you or that's appropriate for your circumstance. So yeah, so Kimberly Crenshaw is brilliant. And I think, I think intersectionality because mostly just because black feminist theory usually gets picked up by corporate interests and then not treated with the seriousness that it deserves, <laughs> mm -hmm. to be completely honest, is like if we were really looking at intersectionality, then we wouldn't be looking at, we wouldn't have organizations that are like, we want to talk about race, but no queer stuff. We want to talk about women, but we don't talk about race at all. We can't. That's just not, that's just functionally not how we have to have this conversation. And so intersectionality reminds us why um, and reminds us that, and reminds me, for example, that like, my privilege as a LGBT person growing up in Canada is wildly different than an LGBT person growing up in Uganda. And my activism here has to have a global focus because that's the promise that queer people made at the first Pride in 1970, was that we would march until queer rights were globally accessible. And so the Pride movement will not end and will have, will have no end until that's possible. And so an intersectional perspective means that I have to remind myself that my the opportunity to celebrate here, which is earned and vital and sacred for queer people to celebrate and all oppressed people to celebrate. But it doesn't mean that with celebration doesn't continue work. There's 
other work that needs to get done. And so it's correct to celebrate here because it reminds people in places where they can't that it's possible. Mm -hmm. And then the privilege that I have by doing the work and getting to celebrate here can be transferred to supporting that work in other places. Thank you. I, I love that. And, and, you know, and it's a good visual. I think that sometimes, um, I know Marcy, with the work we've done, we've tried to visual, like we've tried to find a way to help people visualize that. And I think that's a really neat way to, to show that, it, you know, every, every side is connected. Yeah. And, and it's, and I think that we even forget that sometimes when we're working on this, how, you talk about identity factors and um, it's about that authentic self. I know Jessica talked about that in our last episode about um, the different hats that she puts on, depending on, on um, what space she's in. And I, and I, I think that that's important for everyone to remember that we are more than what we even present in public, right? Like yeah. um, we're internal, we're external there. We're a whole person. So yeah. before okay. we, Oh, sorry. sorry? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, the only thing I'll add is um, I think it's important, especially given the context of this podcast. It's something that I say in session, but I'm not sure if you're not trans. It's something most people know. In Canada, uh, trans and non-binary people didn't receive federal employment protection until June 2017. Interestingly enough, it happened on my birthday, but I was in the woods. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, June 2017 is the first time that any of us receive federal employment protection. It happened for gay, lesbian, and bisexual Canadians in 1996. So if you're seeing an explosion, and actually, and I'm biased because I'm from Alberta, but both of those court cases were fought and won by Albertans, which is a really fascinating piece of Canadian history. Yeah, Everett Clifford mm. uh, and Delwyn Green, who was an Edmonton City teacher and won federal employment protection for LGBT employees. Stubborn Albertans have gotten a lot of queer stuff done in this country. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but because of that, if you're seeing an explosion in diversity, it's because we're protected for the first time. And so that's part of it, right? That's something mm -hmm. that um, I know the vast majority of the trans people in my world who transitioned before that, almost all of them have been fired or were fired immediately. I was. I was working construction at the time. And so when we talk about allyship, the legislation protection opens up the possibility for us to exist in the world in ways that are safe for us. And so you're going to see more gender variance because we can then put food on the table as a response of living authentically. And mm -hmm. that's a pretty cool thing, but it, it makes a big difference for people, particularly people who are parents when they transition or have other obligations, like taking on most trans people, especially 10 years ago, basically gave up everything in their lives, family connections, sometimes lost their kids. There was no protection for us, but there's no choice to not live as who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's been a hard choice for people for a long time. And so the reticence or concern to be supported is valid. And it comes from that kind of legislative place. Well, and, and it goes to show you that um, there can be pushback for creating legislation on topics or policy. And <laughs> there's... <laughs> <laughs> There's many instances where if we don't have legislation on something, it just simply will not happen, right? Like, yeah. Or it's fear, fear-mongering, right? Look, trans people have been peeing next to you for thousands of years. No one cared <laughs> until conservatives started calling them bathroom bills. It's not about bathrooms. It's nothing yeah. to do with bathrooms, right? I was not unsafe to walk into a public washroom until 10 years ago as a, tra as a visibly queer person. Um, and I say that as somebody who, as a lesbian, was like, pulled out of bathrooms by security due to homophobia, like had mm -hmm. violent physical incidents in those circumstances. So, so yeah, like trans people have never, more Republicans have been arrested in washrooms than trans people ever have or ever will be. <laughs> and I just don't think that we should stop people from being able to use public bathrooms because we can't deal with our own gender, which is what that mm -hmm. is. 
Well, that ties into what we were talking about before, just how there's so many people that never get a chance to be in, be in their own shoes or un, to explore their own gender, let alone try to understand what someone else's journey is. So, yeah. yeah. Now, before we... Yeah, for sure. Um, now, before we started, you were telling us about a project that you did here in Calgary. And we want to hear, we said, stop talking, we need to hear it on the <laughs> recording. So tell us about uh, a film that you worked on a couple of years ago. Yeah, so uh, two years ago, when I was working with the Calgary Queer Art Society, which was fairy tales, and then we went through a, we went through a name change while I was there. Uh, so we, we were coming up on the 20th anniversary of the film festival. Uh, the film festival was the largest LGBT film festival outside of Vancouver in Western Canada and the only one in the prairies. So there was a significant audience for it. And one of the stories that hadn't been told uh, is it's really, really difficult to find LGBT stories specific to the prairies, which is interesting because, like I mentioned, there have been significant human rights cases that have been won due to Albertans. Um, there, there is uh, there's a 40 a 40 year history of uh, lesbian potlucks in Winnipeg that are the foundation of the pride movement there. Um, Saskatchewan is the place where gender markers on uh, on uh, birth certificates is going are going is going to start changing. Uh, so there's a trans teen in Saskatchewan who's moving that forward. But despite that, we saw a really significant kind of brain drain from the community in the 80s and 90s around the AIDS crisis, around the Klein years. And so there was a, there was a, there we lost a lot of mentors who were holding on to that history, who in other cities have contributed to archives and other pieces like that. So I connected with a, a founder of the organization named Kevin Allen, who runs a project called the Calgary Queer History Project. Uh, he's actually released a book called uh, Our Stories Matter, which is spectacular. You can get it at Shelf Life Books in Calgary, or it's available online, and it's short vignettes that cover a lot of this history. So we partnered up and decided to make a documentary as a thank you uh, to the audience who'd supported us for the last 20 years. We wanted to give them back their history in a, in a concentrated form. And so we, we got a project from, actually we got a project from Canadian Heritage when they first opened a Western division out here uh, and they funded the project. And so we started working on it. Uh, so we made a documentary called, it's called Outliers, um, Calgary's Queer History, and it covers uh, 1950 up until about 2010 in some significant detail. So we did an animated map and we had, uh, we did dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a look through how the development of the community started, what were the significant human rights wins, um, when did the conversation happen here, what was the pushback, and what is uniquely the story of this place. Uh, and what's quite interesting is there, because, because of real estate and the nature of real estate in Calgary, most of the buildings where, um, where iconic queer places exist are still around. They're just other businesses now. And so the goal of the documentary, because isolation in the Calgary queer community is really common, the goal was to show that um, dozens and dozens of blocks of this city have a deep and abiding queer history that makes you feel part of the city. So when I walk around the city now, I see it very differently uh, than mm -hmm. I did a couple of years ago, but there was a lot of really interesting work that happened here. Uh, we have one of the oldest, for example, here's a, a short story that I think is quite neat. So one of the oldest LGBT organizations in the community is called the, the Imperial Court of the Chinook Arch, the Sovereign Imperial Court of the Chinook Arch. Uh, the court system is a replication of the monarchy system, which is which is, and the, it's replicated by drag performers. So they replicate the monarchy system and advocate for charitable work. So they give millions of dollars to charity every year. The court system exists across all of North America. And they started in 1974 uh, and they raised, at the time in 1974, they raised $50,000 in their first year from just drag shows and tips. And, <laughs> and this is a significant amount of money. And they tried to give that money away for six months and no one would take it mm -hmm. because it was gay money. 
So the World Wildlife Federation wouldn't take it. The Cancer Society wouldn't take it. The Homelessness Services wouldn't take it. They wouldn't touch it, except for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Mm -hmm. Make-A-Wish Foundation said, absolutely, thank you very much. And in Calgary, for that reason, since 1974, the Make-A-Wish Foundation has always received charitable donations from the court for its entire 43-year history. Out of that relationship, (laughs) (laughs) out of that relationship, it was like they said yes, and so the queer community has supported them ever since. And like that kind of work. My son's a wish kid, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's and so still the court still gives them thousands of dollars every year. It's an important part of the work. And it was just that they turned around and said, Yeah, we'll take your money. Oh, sorry, I don't mean to get so emotional, but uh, it's okay. (laughs) I know that story very well. And um uh, yeah, if you go to a, well, it's now, actually, it was Children's Wish, mm-hmm. and they've now merged with Make-A-Wish, and um, <laughs> I remember going to our first event with my son, and and um, <laughs> the uh, the drag um, the drag queen met my kids, and oh my god, it was such a neat experience, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I remember we all took a picture together, they had a, they had a, a, a booth yep. that we all got to go in and take a picture, and, and um, and the kid, my kids were quite young at the time. And I remember afterwards, <laughs> my my daughter looking to me and saying, Mom, why don't you wear nice makeup like her? <laughs> <laughs> so oh, cute. my God, it was awesome. But yeah, sorry, I don't mean to get really uh, choked no, up. No, it's really special. Yeah, yeah, nobody would take their money. Nobody would take their money. And like, that's allyship, right? They just had to say yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the and and the other thing is in, in communities, never discount the arts. Drag queens are the reason that thousands of gay men are alive today. Yeah. Drag queens are the reason that AIDS and HIV organizations exist. And those organizations, interestingly enough, still exist because of lesbian women who were professionalized in the feminist movement over the 60s and 70s. And when so many gay men had died, that AIDS organizations were starting to collapse and hospices were starting to run out of staff members and people to save people's lives. There was this incredible movement back into the community of professionalized lesbian women who had worked in healthcare who recovered mm-hmm. those organizations uh, and out of respect for that incredible act of allyship the acronym is lgbt for that reason the l goes first out of respect for the lesbian women that saved the movement in the 90s mm-hmm. yeah. so there's all of these opportunities to celebrate um who we are and where we've come from and we just have to be willing to s- examine our history and to see where we can help others but the queer community is an interesting example of that because we don't always get along but when it comes, when somebody comes for one of us, we show up. Mm-hmm. Sure. Wow. I think we need to do a whole another episode with you on the, on the history, too, because we're learning so much. Well, I didn't know why the L went first. So neither. Neither. I, I use it as a I, when I talk about the acronym in sessions where there's space for it, especially if there's a serious sort of like gender inequity in the organization. I tend to tell that story because it's a really profound example of just like you can celebrate the good and the bad things in your history. You can acknowledge that we made mistakes and that there are heroes that show up every day in small ways. So, yeah. So the, and the acronym is an example of that. All the flags are an example of that. The history behind the development of all of the flags is actually fascinating too. So Harvey Milk commissioned the rainbow flag it was created in 1977 by Gilbert Baker. And he saw it once before he, before Harvey Milk was murdered in November of 1978. And so, but you know, so the creation of that was, you know, he walked into the San Francisco community center and said, Hey, look, the Nazis used the pink triangle against us. I want a new symbol. Mm-hmm. And so it was created for that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 all it's all one. I mean, my whole community is like one person who gives a shit 
who's not willing mm-hmm. to either see their friends or themselves treated like this, who's then willing to extend that kindness into the world they want to participate in. And mm-hmm. like, that should be ultimately what we all want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm lucky. I stand yeah. on the shoulders of giants and stubborn, angry drag queens who are absolutely not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Sense. yeah. Just picturing it. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, queer people, I was asked a question once in a session, and then I'm sorry, now I'm rambling, so I can totally... That's okay. <laughs> no, it's all right. But I, I was asked a question once in an educational session. This was about two years ago. I've never forgotten it. And the woman asked me, why do... Essentially, she said, like, why do queer people seem so extroverted and, like, extra all the time? And it was... a it, The question came from a place of affection. There was, like, a language barrier. So we sorted it out. Um, and I was like, oh, I know why you're asking me. And the and And it took me a minute to answer, and I said, well... Queer people have to create their own joy in the world because it has never been reflected to us by us. Mm. So things like the Hayes Code and media representation, when you're told that the only thing that you can possibly be in the world once you figure out who you are um, is an abomination or is not acceptable mm-hmm. to your community or will involve leaving, leaving your small town, that can be really terrifying. And so the response, and you see this in Black communities too. You see like Black Lives Matter protests protests that are huge dance parties because it's about how vitally powerful um, joy in communities that are oppressed is. It's an incredibly powerful way to connect and to connect ourselves to each other because living under oppressive systems is a reminder of how often you are invalidated and there is nothing more powerful than dancing in the street in response. <laughs> so there, and so there, there is something so, so incredibly powerful about creating our own joy, living in our own gender identities, regardless if, if you happen to be cisgender or transgender, but living out loud in your gender mm-hmm. identities in places where you feel good and having that reflected back to you by community. Like uh, there's a reason that gay bars are church. There's a reason that dance floors are powerful. It's that other side of humanness. And so Black Lives Matter protests when their dance parties are dance parties in a political way. And so mm-hmm. is pride, right? It's about choosing to celebrate in the face of many, many people that would rather you not. And so queer joy is sacred and it's a choice. You choose that joy and project that joy for others because most of us didn't see ourselves growing up represented anywhere. And so Mm -hmm. all of us who choose to live out as who we are, are that person for someone we're never going to meet. And the more of us, the better, the more representation, the better. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could give you both hugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great COVID. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today, James, and and for sharing this wealth of information and history with us. We'll have to have you back for sure. Um, and we will be following up with you and, and listing out, putting all the information that you shared and, and different links and creating a, a resource section. So for any listeners um, to get more information or to learn more about any of these topics or to access James's uh, documentary. Um, we'll uh, put all of that in the in the resources section as well. And you're the only one who's ever made me cry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a first. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny how lives connect, right? Like this yeah. is the thing: is the more we talk to each other, the less difference we have. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is what I've discovered my whole life, right? So I walk walk into the room as in an identity group that most people have seen on like Maury or Oprah or something. Like it depends on where your awareness is. Trans visibility is way better uh, than it used to be. Um, But 
you know, you're always in this position to be like, well, let's just connect then. And then I'm, I, I tend to be kind of goofy. And so <laughs> people have a really hard time hating you when you're friendly. Uh, it doesn't make them look great. So I've, you know, <laughs> one of those, like, like I said, it's like buying liquor underage. I deserve to be there. I deserve to participate in the world and make it a better place. I'm happy to do that with you if you're not a dick about it. <laughs> if you are a dick about it, let's talk about it then. <laughs> All right, let's talk about it then. Like, it's not that hard. I believe you can respect me. And I believe that we each have value to give to each other. Yeah. When Beautiful. I think it teach it teaches all of us that I think we all could use some work to be happy in our own skin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like oh, the beauty industry mm-hmm. would lose millions of dollars if we all were just comfortable in our own bodies for 10 minutes. Yeah. So powerful. I think COVID has taught us that a little bit. Like I think that um, I think oh I even saw a quote this morning where someone mentioned that they remember the old days when they had to get up, have a shower, do their hair, put on high heel shoes, take three trains to like said all these things. I used to do that before eight thirty every morning. Why? Why did I do that? <laughs> right. So I do think we're kind of starting to value time a little bit more, or at least I say that. We'll see what happens six months from now, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. right? So yeah. I don't know if I hope we we keep these lessons learned and uh, I have seen a, a small shift, even if it's just individually. But um, I do think that we could all benefit from taking the time to know ourselves better, uh, our gender, everything about ourselves, just know ourselves better. Like you said, you have a connection with your body. How many women can say that? Exactly. Right? And what a powerful like you're in your body all the time. You're right there. Like what? Like what a powerful because when the world goes to shit, like it is sort of right now, like yeah. if, there's, if there's a quiet place to center that, that's yours. No one can take that away from you. Like it's the it's the thing we learn about POW camps. Like if there is something that no one can take from you, which is you, mm-hmm. yes, everything is possible from there. Whew. Well, anyway, this has been great. <laughs> <laughs> Very powerful day. Good Good Friday morning. Uh, I think uh, Marcy, did you take? Did you write some takeaways? I, I feel like there's too many. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was, and I've just been really enthralled and James, you're such a beautiful person. And like you approach (laughs) this work with like such empathy and care and courage. Um, It's just always a joy to spend time with you. So it's lovely to have you here. I I mean, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I've really enjoyed expanding the work and and finding ways to have the conversation. I don't know if when I started being an activist, no one wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to like no one wanted to talk about. I remember walking to the public library and then being like, we don't do that. Leave. And that my Mm. festival was at the public library two years ago. Mm. Things changed. Hosted it for free and like it, it gave us this amazing space and like a total difference, right? So yeah, it just somebody's got to start having the conversations. Absolutely, spaces can change. Like I, I think that we mm-hmm. completely misunderstand how many things are socially constructed, right? Mm-hmm. Like we think that that wow, and 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 I've said this on the podcast before. I I hate that excuse. Well, that's the way it's always been. That's just mm. how it is. No, we created that. We all of these things are socially created, which means these can socially be de- deconstructed. They can be socially adjusted. They can could be completely abolished. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing stopping us other than, like you mentioned, our own willingness to change. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. Well, yeah. If there are some takeaways from today, I'd say that's definitely part of it. And um, I loved your comments about intersectionality and privilege. Um, mm-hmm. I think we get lost in the definition sometimes, and it's great to to think about it through other people's eyes and other people's uh, lived experiences. So, yes, thank you for the, for all of that. And so as we wrap up here, um, so don't forget to take a look at our resource section and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk with you offline to make sure we put that in there for everybody. And once again, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and actually we're now on Amazon Music too. And so please hit subscribe to be notified of next episodes as they're released. And let's continue the conversation. So please let us know what you think. Um, send us questions um, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time. Bye. Bye.